Welcome to season two of Soul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees uncover the heart and soul of what it means to be both Asian American and adopted through the sharing of adoptee stories. I'm Shanae. And I'm Benny. And this week we're joined by fellow Korean adoptee Mel Taven. Mel, I met you in a webinar back in April uh, about restorative justice and response to anti-Asian violence. Um, so it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm excited that we could connect. You're a musician as well as an adoptee, so we'll dive into some of that. You're passionate about AAPI rights, um, so we're really, really excited. Do you want to introduce yourself and share a little bit about your origin story and kind of your current life status for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Uh, I can't believe that a Zoom conference is what brought us together. I feel like I've met so many amazing people on Zoom this year, um, which is great. Uh, my name is Mel Taven, and I currently live in Los Angeles, California. Um, I am adopted from South Korea uh, to a family of white people from the Midwest. And I have been spending majority of my specific year um, just kind of uncovering a lot of my heritage and my background. And it kind of all launched from a huge interest in the restaurants that I was working in, which is Korean food, um, and the people that kind of brought me under their wing while discovering Korean food and how amazing it is and learning about Korean history and the Korean War. And then as I started looking deeper into that, I decided to take the big leap into finding more about myself. And so I took a 23andMe test. And that kind of like, you know, it's like a ongoing, like <laughs> opening a box inside of another box inside of another box inside of another box inside of another box. And then somebody hands you another box that has another box in it. And <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't stop. And I think that that's really scary. But it's also really, really, it's amazing to be able to have the opportunity to find out more about yourself instead of having it told to you, you get to, you know, find out for yourself. So it's been a true journey. Mm -hmm. You said that you um, met people working in Korean restaurants when you were in New York. Did you consciously choose to work in Korean restaurants? Was that something that happened purposefully or did it just you happened to work in a restaurant and it happened to be Korean and then that started that train? So I've been working in restaurants since I was 13. Um, and so it started off as like, well, this is all I know and I need money. So I'm going to keep doing this. And then when I moved to New York, um, which is like big time, the big leagues of restaurant industry, I decided that, you know, maybe be working at a Korean restaurant would be a new step and like really interesting. And there was a chef named Sohee Kim, which she's a really um, well-known Korean chef in New York. Um, she owns a few restaurants. Um, and when I met her, she really just automatically gave me more of like a mother figure, chef figure. She wasn't like any chef I had ever met in New York. And she was a female chef, one. And two, she was a Korean chef. And awesome. so it was really awesome. And she she inspired me to just kind of not be so reserved and not be so afraid. Like she basically gave me the safe space to be like, hey, you deserve to know this too. Because as an adoptee, mm. you don't feel like you do a lot of the time. And so she was like, no, I mean, let me let me show you some things. And so she showed me a lot of things about her life and, um, you know, what she's teaching her kids. And then from there, I moved on to a um, 
Michelin Korean barbecue restaurant called Coat Korean Steakhouse, where I learned a ton and I met amazing Korean people. And I met a lot of Asian, um, a few of my managers were Asian people who seriously changed the way I view not just food, but leadership and just being an Asian person in New York City. Um, yeah. But there's such a community in food, but there's specifically Korean food. It's pretty amazing how much of a community there is, specifically in Korean barbecue. You know, I, I mean, I came from a Korean barbecue restaurant that was a Korea, uh, like a karaoke joint and like family oriented and fun and bubbly. And then I went to a Michelin star Korean barbecue place and it was still family oriented, bubbly, super like let's get lit is their, um, you know, their (laughs) phrase. And every Korean barbecue place I've ever been to, no matter what it is, no matter what stars they have or accolades, the spirit is always so like, welcome to my table. Let's enjoy one another. Let's have a good time. Let's get lit. And every single bite you have is going to be the best bite of your life. And so that alone was like, it gave me kind of like a pride to be Korean in that sense. Yeah. You know? So I kind of owe a lot of this to Korean restaurants for sure. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I wonder, I've heard, I've heard great things about Ko Steakhouse. I feel like it's been on a bunch of YouTube videos and food yeah. things that I've watched, especially recently, because I think that they had adapted really well for COVID. Um, yeah. kind of switched gears and things like that to make sure that they were still turning a profit and feeding people and, you know, all those things. But mm-hmm. that's awesome about the, just the sense of community, it seems like between yeah. the Korean restaurants, specifically the K barbecue restaurants. And mm-hmm. I wonder if it has to do with how you eat Korean barbecue too, that it's like everybody around a table and sharing. I think it does. I think, I mean, I think it would be silly not to acknowledge that, right? And to like, I think that there's something so important in Panchan and the fact that like, it's all these small little dishes, they all taste differently, but you can make the like amount of combinations you can make are, you know, unlimited and the amount of conversations you can make within that. If you were to just talk about the panchan on your table with the people that you were with, you would have endless conversation if you like kept it to that one subject. And so you're kind it kind of forces you, you know, to be together. It like forces the togetherness and you either learn about the way you taste or you learn about the person. And I think that that really shows testament to, you know, Korean temple food and how Mm -hmm. the whole entire thing started and how it is based on let's all share this. We're all going to enjoy the same meal. We're going to get the same nutrition. We're going to be grateful for the same things. We're going to work for this in the same way that, you know, our ancestors did. And then you take it to the Korean war where we're literally starving and we still have this temple food, which keeps us sustained. And now from the, from temple food, from the temple to the war, to a Michelin star restaurant tabletop, and you still have mm-hmm. that same, you know, beautiful history and that same conversation topic. I guarantee you at the temple, they were like, whoa, this kimchi's really good. It could be a little spicier. Guarantee you <laughs> at the war, it was like, this kimchi's knocking my socks off. It's really spicy. And I guarantee you at Kokrian Steakhouse, they're commenting on the kimchi either way, you know? So yeah. it's really cool. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Now, I got a few questions. First first of all, um, you said you've been working in restaurants since you were 12. Uh, are you, were you into the Aloha system or, or uh, what kind of 
point of service system did you use? What's the oh yeah, the Aloha POS. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, does that does, I okay, hate first of all, does, does that does that give you nightmares? Does it give you nightmares? Specifically Aloha. I worked uh, oh, at this I worked oh, at god. this restaurant when I when I was 13, I moved to South Dakota and Right mm. out of high school, I became a waitress at um, a restaurant that doesn't exist, but I'll still skip the name of it. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. they use Aloha oh, as uh. the POS system. And oh, I'm so happy that enough people have used Aloha to finally be like, you know what? We're going to find a better solution for this. Now there's amazing POS systems. You can use yeah. anything you want. <laughs> and yes. nobody really uses Aloha anymore. It's great. So if anything, yeah. you should be grateful for Aloha. But yeah. I know. <laughs> Sometimes when I go to bars, I'll um, see people still using Aloha and they're <laughs> trying to divide up a single order into separate orders. And there's just so, it's so rigid and so yes. clunky. Like, you, I you, feel just so have to, you just have to be like, hey, have you heard of toast? No, not the food. <laughs> not the breakfast item. This is great for your house. <laughs> exactly. That's, oh. that's so when you mentioned that, I'm like, I got to ask if she was ever in Aloha because yep. that's, that system still brings you nightmares. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> um, <sighs> so you said um, New York brought you a lot of uh, new experiences. So does that mean uh, growing up that you weren't as exposed to as much of your heritage or that wasn't talked about. Can you? Yeah, 100%. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd love to, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I grew up from 1 to 13 years of age. I grew up in northern Minnesota on the Iron Range. So it was very remote isn't necessarily the right word, but it's a small town. Every town looks the same. Nobody had money. And everyone was white. And my brother and I were the only people of... Korean descent, but any descent that was not white. And so growing up, we just didn't have the resources. You know, I don't blame anyone when I look back on it because there weren't any other Korean people and there weren't any other people of color. So how would we be able to identify within our color if we, you know, like if all we knew was white culture, you know, you're going to be what you know, you can't be, you can't know what you don't know. And so growing up, was hard. And then we moved to South Dakota when I was 13 years old in Sioux Falls, which has a lot more money and like name brands for clothes and like fancy schools and nice cars that weren't like trucks or vans. You know what I mean? Like it was a big, I would say that was one of the biggest culture shocks of my life was to come to a school that like kids didn't go to Walmart to buy clothes. Yeah. But, but it was hard because I was still that kid. For a long time. I never stopped being that kid, to be honest. So you had that and then you had other people of color and you had other Korean adoptees. And something that I have noticed, especially in my adulthood, a lot of Korean adoptees are based in the Midwest of the United States. I don't necessarily know why. I'm trying to look into that a little bit more because I think there's a lot to it. But there were a lot of people that you know were Korean adoptees. We had a Korean exchange student named Ming come in and she was super nice but she just thought I was like a total alien because she didn't understand that I looked Korean but I had no idea what Korea was or I didn't know I remember we had two girls that moved in and they were sisters and they were Korean and their mom had recently passed away and their dad was a big business mogul in South Korea I don't know how they ended up in Sioux Falls South Dakota but I remember they said have you tried kimchi and I go 
what the F is kimchi? You know, I don't know what that is. Yeah. And they were like, you don't know what kimchi is? And at first they were really offended. Like they took it deeply within themselves. They could not believe a person that looked like me did not know what, you know, the biggest food ever in Korea was. And so they brought me to their house and I had kimchi for the first time in that big tub. <laughs> and because it's the only way. And I don't even know to this day, I don't know how they got that big tub. You cannot buy kimchi. At least when I lived there, you couldn't buy kimchi. It wasn't anywhere. It wasn't anywhere at all. And so I tried it. I loved it. And so it was molding me a lot more than I gave it credit for. And learning that, and then I think the one of the only, if not the only, Asian person with actual Asian parents who immigrated, who you know cooked actual Asian food was a friend of mine, John Chow. And John Chow was one of the only people that were truly proud to be Asian and knew what that was, you know, because he had Asian parents. He knew his language. He knew his food. And he never, ever, or at least not what it seemed, he never, ever felt different. He would always, whenever we saw each other, he'd go, we Asians got to stick together. And that was like <laughs> our thing. And looking back at it, I was like, wow, he was kind of the first person, the first example to show mm. me that like, mm -hmm. you should be super proud of the way, you, not only the way you look, but what you're learning, you know? Um, and so I have those things starting at 13 and, until, you know, growing up. And I think that regardless, you know, of actually sitting down and knowing my heritage or, or not, that really was important. And it truly did shape me to be who I am, for sure. I think I have had some of those friends too, in my life that came across and they're like, we Asians got to stick together. And <laughs> I think I was younger, maybe in my teens or 20s. I was like, all right, dude, you're coming on too strong. I, I, I'm a little <laughs> bit different. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I can definitely relate to those stories too. Those first people in my life that are like, whoa, I'm seen as Asian. This person is a celebrating that. We got to stick together. That yeah. was something so unique and foreign to me so at that foreign. time too. Yes. No, 100%. It seems like you are already very passionate about food based on just your expertise um, and your experiences. But you also, I would assume, because you are a singer and a songwriter, that you are also very passionate about music. You are on The Bachelor spinoff, Listen to Your Heart. We'll talk about that in a second because I think that you have some very interesting and important insights to that experience. But how did you find music? What does it mean to you? How did that become such a large part of your life? Well, I grew up listening to a lot of classic rock. And the first, you know, music that I actually fell in love with was Fleetwood Mac, specifically Stevie Nicks. I thought she was amazing. And I remember my dad saying that he had a crush on Stevie Nicks, and I took it really personally. And we were in the car. A lot of my childhood was just in the car listening to music. And I was staring at the, the original Rumors cover, which is just Stevie like in this weird gypsy pose with the words Fleetwood Mac. And I was staring at it and I said, do you not love mom anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love mom, you know. But Stevie Nicks, just, she didn't sound like anyone else. You know, she didn't really go by anyone else's rules. She was weird, but weird enough. And her lyrics were great. I grew up with that. I grew up with a lot of Melissa Etheridge. A lot of just like the good old, you know, 
three-part chord progression with like some solid you know lyrics that start slow get like thick in the middle super big at the like bridge and then like sizzle away at the bottom like I I just grew up with good old you know music and it was kind of an escape and when you're a little kid in the back seat listening to all this music you know watching watching everything go by in the window it is an escape and I found that to be incredibly comforting and as a kid I you know, I was a good little Asian girl and learned piano and I um, got into flute. That was my first band instrument. And then I decided to pursue flute more professionally and I took private lessons and I tried out for all state band and I got into marching bands and then I got into musical theater and like it all kind of became an escape. And yeah. If I look back at it truly as an adult and just see it for what it is and not necessarily the love of music, I really wanted to feel included and I wanted to feel like I was good at something and I wanted to feel different in the way I, I wanted control over the way I was different. I wanted control over it. I wanted to feel different because you could watch me on a stage instead of looking at me in the hallway and being different like she's different because she's on a stage not just because she looks different you know mm-hmm. I wanted yes. to escape that and take on different roles and like immerse myself in those roles and I think that's why a lot of kids get into acting and a lot of kids get into theater and I've always wanted to play guitar and that was my brother's instrument so I couldn't play it and I was always so upset because Melissa Etheridge played the guitar. And so I would sneak my brother's guitar in the middle of the night and look up guitar chords on my huge computer and practice those. (laughs) And then when I got into college, I really got into uh, guitar and I decided I just ended up not going to classes and I just would play guitar. (laughs) Um, But I started singing in High school, I took part in a black gospel, like a touring black gospel choir that sadly was not black people. But it was um, a bunch of high schoolers and we all sang like Kirk Franklin and it was pretty great and it taught me how to sing and it really instilled my faith in, you know, Christ, which was really big. And that was an escape too, as a kid, going to youth group and going to church and going on missions trips and singing. And so all all music was for me was this escape and this whole new identity that I could control instead of an identity that could be put on me. And then I decided my freshman year of college, I decided that I was not going to class. I was practicing guitar and I didn't want to do my class. And so I was like, well, what do I want to do right now? And it was guitar. So I auditioned for Berklee College of Music in Boston. And it was a long, excruciating, stressful time, but I got in. And then when I went to Boston, I kind of got shook a little bit and was shown how to actually do stuff. <laughs> like, how do you actually make a band? How do you actually write oh. a song? How do you, mm-hmm. you know, like, how do you get on the radio? Like, what is the industry? What's the map? What's the, you know, end goal? And then that kind of took it from there. And it was just like, okay, well, I'm learning how to do it. And now I know I can do it. So I guess I'll keep doing it. And I'm still doing it. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I'm curious, what year were you what years were you at Berkeley? I was there 2012-2013. Um and then I dropped out and I lived in Boston until 2017 and then I oh, okay. moved to New York. 
So I used to live because I, until we moved to Colorado two years ago, I was living in Boston, like post-college and for most of my adult life. And I was right across the street from Berkeley. Oh, really? Yeah. When you were there. So I lived, you know how like directly across the street, there are those apartments like on Charles Street because you go under the bridge to Tequila Rain. Did you ever go to Tequila Rain? You are literally the third person this week to bring up Tequila Rain. (laughs) You, you really uh, are. I've met so many people this week that have like gone to co- school in Boston and they've all brought that place up. Oh my so yes. I'm like not, I'm not proud to ask that question. <laughs> like I don't ask because it's popular and like people should go there because it's like a great place to go. I feel like. Listen, it was there. It was available. It was readily exactly. available. Oh my I just gosh. looked it up. <laughs> I just looked it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have to. Like, I'm so oh out God. of the loop, but it's like it closed in 2017. <laughs> oh, sorry, Betty. But, uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> looks man. like a riot, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe that we crossed paths so many times in our life. And now here we are. I know. Amazing. Yeah. I know. Malik, I can definitely relate to your using music to escape or, or bring you happiness or bring you some identity. I just wasn't as good as you, and I can't sing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I definitely remember uh, playing guitar and watching bands come on like late night TV shows and taping them and recording them and be like, oh, bar core, bar core, power core, power core. (laughs) And then uh, when I started to look into real sheet music, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just know just like the guitar tabs. It's definitely an inspiration to see people stick with it because yeah, it's not music easy. and instrument is really hard. Yeah. Sure you know, too. Yeah. It's the worst sometimes, but it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to your musical journey, um, I had mentioned earlier, you were on The Bachelor spinoff, Listen to Your Heart. Mm-hmm. And you and I had talked briefly in the pre-call um, about your experience on that franchise, uh, because specifically now it's coming under so much fire. I mean, it has not been racially diverse for pretty much its entire existence, but it's now just sort of being called to the carpet. I'm curious what your experience was, how you felt being part of that franchise as an Asian woman, and what your thoughts were. I mean, I didn't go in with like an AAPI mission. Like I wasn't on a mission when I went in. Uh, I just wanted a cool experience and I wasn't in a position to say no to things. And how often do you get asked to be on a reality TV show? And the more and more I talked to the producers, it was like, yeah, I mean, why not? Let's just do this. Um, They're very good at their job. So then when I got there, I was waiting like in the cocktail hour where you first meet everyone and everyone meets everyone and everyone meets everyone. You just kind of wonder who's going to walk into the door. Of course, everybody wonders that. Who's going to walk into the door? And it's really instilled in you, like, that could be the love of your life, walking in the door. You never know. <laughs> and to me, it wasn't yeah. looking for the love of my life. I was just like, can someone look like me? Is that like, yeah. like mm-hmm. you know, because I'm not going to lie, it was slightly triggering being the only one again. And yeah. I didn't know that at the time that, that was, that's what I was feeling. But then there wasn't. And someone had pulled me aside and was like, hey, you, you're actually representing your people and do a good job because the person that's airing right now isn't doing a hot job of it and I didn't feel great about that I was just kind of like I did not ask for this I didn't ask to be this and I didn't have the right verbiage and this was only a year ago I didn't have the right verbiage to describe myself I didn't feel like I had the right sonic ground to start you know talking about how I look and how that makes me feel I guess if you were to really narrow it down and I didn't want the responsibility because the whole entire world was like 
you are an adopted Asian person. You don't get to represent. Like I, I felt like my whole entire life was that. You don't know. You don't have an ama. You don't have an apa. You don't have all these things. You walk like a white person. You have dyed hair. You're like, there's so many things about you that make you not Korean. So why now? Why is this being put on me now? And after I left and the show aired, which, by the way, is incredibly uncomfortable to watch yourself on reality TV, by the way. <laughs> like it's, it's a lot. You learn a lot about it yourself. Um, but I suddenly found this huge, like this audience of people found me that were Asian adoptees. and so many of them during just all the press that you have to do for this show, so many of them would ask me AAPI questions, specifically adoptee questions, and I would get so uncomfortable and I wouldn't Mm -hmm. answer them and I would deflect. I would 100% Mm -hmm. deflect. I wouldn't answer them. I wouldn't know what to say. And I hated it. And there was a episode of a rose ceremony, which by the way, are excruciating and not fun. So when you, when you watch the bachelor and you're like, Oh my gosh, like I'm sweating watching these people at the stupid rose ceremony. It's because we've been standing there for two hours, just staring at one another, knowing what the consequences are. And it's like, you just, it's not fun. And so I had picked Gabe who was this very attractive football esque black guy who is like the nicest kid ever such a good person and I did I just did it because I thought he was a great guy and I didn't think that he was done on the show yet and when it aired everyone thought it was just this amazing like Asian person picking a black person you know yellow peril black power unite thing and I was like oh shit that's like oh wow I didn't I didn't even think that going into it And so when this show is airing, I'm learning so much about how much of an impact, regardless whether I liked it or not, just being a person of color on somebody's screen gave me the responsibility. No one gave me that responsibility when they said, hey, you have to, you got a lot going on. You got to represent your people. That wasn't them. It was just the mere fact that I was somebody that looked different and I was on TV. All that responsibility fell into my lap. And that's just the way it is. And when I realized that, I was like, okay. And I got a little bit more of a stronger backbone with it. And I felt more of an obligation to learn more about my heritage. Because I was like, okay, well, if all these people are coming to me for these questions, I don't even know. Well, they should know. And I should know. Wait, hang on. I should know. Yeah, I should be able to tell them these things. I should be able to experience these things and express what it's like. But I should know for me, too, not because I was on a TV show. And so throughout that and working in a Korean restaurant, I decided to take a 23andMe test. And I, your whole entire life, you're walking around like a big question mark. I don't know if you guys experienced this, but, you know, when you're told you're adopted from Korea, that's kind of all you know. Like, okay, great. I'm adopted from Korea. I don't know if I'm Korean. I don't know if I'm 100% whatever. I don't know what's all in this. And so when you take a 23andMe test, you no longer become a question mark running around. You have an answer. And that's scarier than having yeah. this question mark in your life. Like knowing for sure is way scarier. And I found out that I'm 100% Korean and all of my like relatives are Kims. So I could be Kim. Mm. Like all these things. And so it's giving me as much as it was frustrating to be on a show like that. And as much as it was frustrating to acknowledge, you know what, there is a lack of diversity. And there was... Right when our season started airing, it was right on the cusp of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
and um, a group of people within the Bachelor franchise that are anonymous formed the Bachelor Diversity Campaign. And it basically held the Bachelor franchise responsible and accountable for bringing more people of color on and not villainizing those people of color and not having them on for 2.5 seconds. And I think it's been doing pretty well. I mean, you look at the you know past two seasons and there has been a lot more diversity and not everybody of color has a sob story and there's a little bit more in depth. And, you know, I think that the audience is broadening too and the, you know, ratings are going up, but it's not something that unfortunately you can't, you can't bachelor franchise is going to take a few years to really get that under their belt. And it's not something you can just fix by picking a black bachelor or, you know, like you just, (laughs) it's just not. And so I acknowledge the change that they've been making and hopefully people keep holding them accountable and it doesn't, it doesn't stop. You mentioned that all of those kind of brought you into this next phase of your journey, just to really explore that AAPI hate and just all those things. Can you talk a little bit more how this journey brought to you where you are today? You had a, you had a crazy 2020, it sounds like. Yeah, it was crazy 2020. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. And everybody's 2020 was crazy. If you if yours wasn't crazy, you weren't awake. Um, right. But I yeah, I mean, you know what? It did all kind of happen at once because the show aired at the beginning of quarantine, and everyone was like, "Oh, God. there was a lot of stress with that because it's not like a show like Love Island where it's airing and you're still on set and you have no idea what everyone's saying about you." You're on a show where you can literally watch people live tweet about you while you're watching the show and say things about you. And it's really weird. Oh, it's wow. hilarious. <laughs> it's really entertaining. Um, but it's really, really strange. So you have that. I was lucky enough to dodge like being recognized because I was in a house in the middle of the woods in Connecticut and I didn't have to deal with that. Um, but... Then the, you know, the pandemic happened and then um, there was so much xenophobia around this time and it was hard because at the time there were, this was before the pandemic, but I had right before I went on set to do The Bachelor, like you stay um, in a hotel room just so you can bubble and like get acclimated to not having your phone and all these things and get, get to know your producers and it's just like standard And I had turned on the TV and I'm like all dressed up to go meet Chris Harrison. And I had turned on the TV and the news had said that the first, there was this thing called the coronavirus from Wuhan and there was this person in a hazmat suit. And then they said, no, we got to go. And I turned it off. And then I'm there for a week ish without a phone, without any acknowledgement of the outside world. And then I came back to the outside world and I asked a friend, I was like, okay, so what did I miss? You know? And she was like, <laughs> was like how much well, time you got? <laughs> Kobe died. And um, there's this like kimono virus going around and uh, killing people. And I was like, what are you talking about? And, I, and it was true. And it was just like, whoa, okay. And then from there, I had to live in New York for the first few weeks of, of the coronavirus hitting and I'm used to xenophobia. I've mm. lived with it my whole life, but mm. this xenophobia working in a Korean restaurant was incredibly profound. And it wasn't just like, I cooked food at your table 
at this restaurant. And it was a Michelin restaurant. And so it was expected to have some sort of decorum, even though our mantra was get lit. You still had some sort of decorum. You couldn't be obnoxious. And it would be things like, oh, is that bat? Like, don't touch my food. You're going to give us the virus. Just like all those small racist things, those things add up. You know, you take a, you take mm-hmm. all the things that you hear, especially as an Asian person working in an Asian restaurant, the kinds of things people say to you while you're serving them because, quote, you work for them, the kind of things they say to you, those are all things that you keep in your emotional backpack. <laughs> yeah. Right? And you can, you know, you work really hard to unload your emotional backpack, but it gets filled up very easily again. It's the constant struggle of that. And then at the pandemic, it gets really heavy. And there was a time where I was wearing a mask because I was aware that that was the right thing to do very early on. But this is not when everybody was wearing a mask. And my manager came up and and she she was this fierce Chinese woman, amazing person. She taught me a lot of life lessons. And she came up to me and she said, are you wearing a mask? And I said, yeah. And she goes, don't wear a mask. And I was like, what? Why? And she said, my friend last night was on the train and this group of guys just beat the shit out of her. And I had to go find her in the ER because she was wearing a mask. And she was an Asian person wearing a mask. And it was like, whoa, I really have to be careful here. Like that was the first time where I was like, crap, the way I look is everything right now. And so I resorted to wearing hats, sunglasses, masks, big bulky jackets, anything that did not identify me as an Asian person. and. I had heard about the gentleman that was on the L train that um, he was on the L train on the way to Union Square. This is a, you know, a train that I've taken many times and it's packed during rush hour, like seriously packed, like you're squeezed together like a box of sardines. And New Yorkers are known for being, you know, intense and considered rude, but it's just because they have somewhere to go. They have places to be. They're focused. But if you need help as New Yorkers, New Yorkers will band together and help you. And in this case, the gentleman was just sitting there. He was an older Asian man and somebody came up to him and he thought that he was going to get punched in the face. And instead he had a box cutter and he slit his face from ear to ear and nobody helped him in the sardine can. Knowing that then I was like, okay, well now I have to be careful on the train. It, it was just horrific. And my very last day in New York... I was on the way to work, on the way to this restaurant, and I had seen on this Facebook page, like, hey, look out for this guy, you know, Asian brothers and sisters, look out for this guy. And there was this gentleman that would go onto the train, look for Asian appearing people, and spray cleaning, like Lysol cleaning supplies in their face, screaming at them, I'm disinfecting you. And I thought to myself, surely that guy's gone. Like, this is not something mm. that's, you know, no way is he still around. This is New York. Someone would stop him. And I was on the way to my train. I got onto my train and I'm a few steps, stops in and he comes onto my train on the opposite side of the car. And there was another Asian guy on the other side. And I was like, very much like I had to do something. I either have to leave or I got to help him. And in the split second, I was like, how would I help him? And the doors open. Doors open. And then like, you have to leave. You got to leave. And so I left. Yeah. I felt horrible. And... I waited a few trains so that way he didn't just like jump from train to train. I texted my boss saying I'm late and she immediately got worried. And then I went onto this train that was completely empty, which is weird in New York. You shouldn't go on an empty train in New York, but during the pandemic it was okay. 
And this woman with a fur coat on, who was a Caucasian woman, she could have sat anywhere on this train, anywhere. And she decided to sit right in front of me. And she put her coat over her face as if to guard her face. And she waved her hand in front of me as if to be like, stay away, stay away. She did that for all eight stops. And I, I wanted to Facebook Live it, but I couldn't because I was on contract with ABC at the time. And I couldn't do that because I represented Bachelor. And then I went to work and my boss just looked at me and he looked so depleted. And he's a Korean man. And he taught me a lot about being Korean. And he looked at me and he goes, did you take the train to work today? And I said, yes. And he goes, mm. And he walked away. And I was like, okay, this is, this is, this isn't, I kind of just realized like, oh, this is all of us now. This is weird. Nobody else that didn't look like us went through these things. And then that night, my boss and the owner of Coat brought us all together and said, I'm going to have to let you guys go. I don't know when we'll see each other again, but Cuomo just called me and gave me a heads up. You got to go and you got to file for unemployment. And that was like my last New York experience. And I, you know, I mean, it wasn't the worst thing, but it really was the first experience of like, it's triggering almost, you know, because it's like, yeah, again, it's because of why I look the way I look that I'm being mm-hmm. treated in this way that doesn't make any sense. Like, I didn't do anything except for being myself. And your whole entire childhood, you feel that way too. Like, why am I being picked on just the way I look? You're making fun of my eyes. Well, they're my eyes. I can't do anything about it. And now it's getting really, really heavy as an adult during a pandemic. And it's still that again. And all us Asians, we were all thinking that was like, oh my gosh, I'm regressing back to my childhood. This is all stuff that's like resurfacing that I've tried so hard to just like suppress and get over and move forward with. And, you know, you take that and then you take the fact that Atlanta happens and then it all happens again. It all comes whooshing up again. It's like, wow, the way I look. And it's incredibly discouraging. And I just found myself at a crossroads of I can either be completely devastated and discouraged or I can be completely discouraged and empowered. And I looked at, you know, this, all these people who want answers from me during Atlanta, everyone was messaging me. Everyone was DMing me. And again, I found myself in this position, just like on the show where I was like, "Uh, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know, you know? And the only thing I could think of, especially during Atlanta was like, the only story I have is my story. And the only thing I can do with Atlanta is relate with it and completely absorb it and wake the people up around me because you know when that happened I was obviously devastated I was terrified and I work in tv and so I went to work and nobody seemed devastated and terrified there were maybe two people that came up to me and said are you okay and they were not white they were not Asian they were white and that pissed me off I was like why is not every and it wasn't about me but it was like why is everyone just like going about their life it's like when someone dies that's in your life and the world keeps going like regularly and you're like why doesn't everybody everybody just stop what they're doing and just take a moment and it's it doesn't happen that way and the fact that things didn't stop in their tracks and people weren't seriously like flipping over tables because of this thing because of this incredible injustice made me think i'm gonna make sure when you see me you think that 
I'm going to make sure when you see me, you understand that. And so I didn't shut up about it. I just like, I we just love started, that. We love that though. I just started talking about yeah. it and I made a point. Like I, that day I went to work and I was called a racial slur. The next day I was in standing traffic and I was also yelled at. Like uh, there were many things that kept happening and I would say it. I would tell my boss, I would talk about it. And my boss, um, his girlfriend is Korean and he had such an insight. And then he was like, wow, this is, incredibly eye-opening because when I see you guys I see you you know and because I don't I'm not around racism and I'm like yeah because we're next to you you're white white people aren't gonna get up all in my grill if I'm with another white person it doesn't work that way and he just was so you know that opened his eyes it opened the eyes of people around me and then I just decided I'm gonna talk about my story and how I wanted to be white for a majority of my life and what that feels like. It's not a good feeling. I want to be completely mm-hmm. different than what I actually am because mm-hmm. of the way other people mm-hmm. make me feel. It's not comfortable, but it's something that everyone can relate to. Even if it's yeah. something as small as like, I have curly hair and I've always wanted straight hair ever since I was a little girl. And it's just like, you just want something that you don't necessarily have the control over. And so that's, that's really what took the turn. And when I decided to just put myself out there, I realized the more vulnerable I am, the more I learn from other people. And the more I learn from other people, the more I learn about myself. And that's essentially all we really want and all we really need is to constantly surround ourselves with people and resources that help us understand ourselves even more, you know, helps the world go around. So at the end of the day, it's been hard, but I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm not going to shut up about it. Too bad, you know, deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in media now, you're, you're in music, obviously. And yeah. you talked about how maybe it was uncomfortable or challenging to maybe represent every Asian person on the TV show um, last year. Mm-hmm. What is what is your um, perception now? Because you're in a place where there's maybe not a lot, lot of diversity. And do you feel that pressure or do you feel that responsibility or do you feel excited about representing yourself in that space? I think that the way you just described it with each step of how I feel has been how I felt. And I now feel excited. Yeah. Um, I still feel that pressure. But throughout this whole entire Stop Asian Hate movement, a lot of my Asian friends they either have chosen not to talk about it because they don't feel comfortable and they've chosen the route to just suppress and keep your head down and be quiet, shut up and just keep living your you know, situation. Or they've been on the same alliance as I and have just been like, yeah, I'm not going to shut up about this. I'm going to keep talking about it. I'm going to start being proud of who I am. Um, I'm going to start going to places that are Asian owned businesses. I'm going to start going to that rock climbing gym that has only Asians there. I'm going to start, you know, like going to H Mart more instead of just ordering, you know, on Amazon, like all these things have really evolved my community. Um, I think as far as the TV world goes, you know, I'm, I'm currently working on a TV show called Love Island for USA and they've always been ahead of the curve as far as diversity goes. Whatever you think about that show, you can't deny that. And there's one girl of AAPI representation. And there was another one that was just on and I'm waiting for more. And I have not really shut up about that either. But I think that if at the end of the day, there is a power in one, there's power in the number one. 
as much as we like to just like look at it and be like, I'm the only Asian. Are you effing kidding me? Like why? There's no excuse for this. At the end of the day, you do have to look at these people and say, yeah, but she's one and she is doing a good job. She's fearlessly AAPI. She is the one face that's on my screen, but she's one. She is the one face on my screen. Instead of being like, she's the only face on my screen, you really have to look at it for what you can. Like, not necessarily making lemonades out of lemonade, but, you know, making lemonades out of lemonade. Like, or lemons out of lemonade. Um, lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> Jeez. You guys get what I'm They're saying. They're trying to try. We get it. <laughs> I kept saying it wrong four times, and then I was like, just take a second and say it right. <laughs> um, but there is, you know, you have to, as as the media starts embracing diversity, as the media specifically starts embracing AAPI people, you just have to embrace that power of one. You have to, like, I think Lisa Ling is a fantastic example of this. As a female AAPI person in news media, you know, being one of the only newscasters that are in the field, talking to people, focusing on these things, she has been the power of one. You know, you look at Michelle Kwan in the world of figure skating. She has been the power of one. You look at Naomi Osaka in tennis. She's been mm-hmm. the power of one. And so, and you look at Tammy from The Bachelor. She was the power of one. Mm-hmm. And as much as you don't like her edit, she was representing being Asian. She was fierce. She was powerful. She definitely stood her ground. She was incredibly motherfucking stubborn. She, you know, she never backed down. She was completely determined. And if anything, those are a lot of Asian qualities <laughs> that we all have. Um, so there's just that. And I think that we're getting a little bit closer. And um, the only way that we can get closer and closer is if we don't shut up about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely feel that uh, it's it's better to have strong voices and and key pieces, especially in media, because I feel media depicts a lot of what people believe in, and yeah, we're so thankful to have people that you like you that are, that have gone through some lot of things and uh, very outspoken about what you're passionate about. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Mel? We could probably talk about so many other things, but we want to make sure before we wrap up. You know, I think I think that there's such you know, every adoption journey is so different. But at the same time, it's not, you know, like, we're all kind of discovering ourselves, especially Korean adoptees. I think that a lot of us share a generally same narrative of I was adopted, I don't know why I was put up for adoption, I was adopted by white people, I was raised in a white society. And now I'm this confused banana Asian that you know, um, and I think that what was it bling empire? Yes. That Kevin character talks Kevin about Kruger, his, yeah. Uh, yes. That was inspiring. I think that it's a really amazing time to discover your Asian adoptive story because you have so many people, especially in the mainstream media, that are doing the same thing. There's others and I can't think of them, but Kevin seems to be really like steering the ship in my mind. And we have the resources now where we can like we have 23 and me now that we can just like mm-hmm think, oh, wow, I'm 100%. Jeez. And let's see where all my other relatives are. Oh, they're in New York. They're in LA. 
they're, you know, these are people that I had zero connection to. And it turns out I've been living in the same spot as they have. And it's like, there's so many opportunities and resources that can bring you closer and closer to your Korean heritage. And now there's my adoption agency has this post adoption program that, you know, they got to the point where they were like, oh, so many people are coming up to us wanting to meet their biological family, or they want to learn the language, or they want to go to the place where they were born, or, you know, and they were just like, let's just make a program. And so now we have that. And it's truly an amazing time, even if you don't necessarily want to open that door and find your biological family or anything like that. You have so many doors to open that show you the world of kimchi or like anything and anyone that furthers getting comfortable with who you are. Finding the comfort in being different, finding the comfort in being the power yeah. of one, not just dealing with it, you know? So I think it's a really great time. I wish that I had that opportunity as a kid. I wish, you know, I had those things, but I'm excited for the kids that are adopted now to kind of embrace that and see where they go and see how they can, you know, flourish and take the world by storm. So if anyone's listening to this and like, I don't know, I don't know, I'm comfortable with the question mark. I'm comfortable. I'm scared. You know, you you can totally be scared. It's totally okay. But eventually something's going to get to you and you're going to want to know more and you just got to lean into it. And now you have the resources to do so. Absolutely. And um, okay, before I let Sinead close, I, ask, I have to ask you a sports question. You mentioned Kobe. Are you an LA fan? Are you an LA sports fan? I no, <laughs> no. I but I acknowledge the sports greats. I'm a tennis fan. I'm an You're tennis, tennis fan. fan. Yeah, pretty big. But yeah, as far as LA sports go, I mean, I shouldn't say no in public, but I'm not. <laughs> I guess if we were yeah. in public, I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Lakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of sports, this is gonna, this is probably going to be airing during the Olympics when it first come out. But there, oh, yeah. <clears throat> there is a gentleman um, on the men's gymnastic team who is a Korean adoptee who really? lives in Colorado. His name is Yul Moldauer. I'm I'm so sorry if I butchered that. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but I'm really excited to see him be part of the biggest stage in the world in him, him being the Korean adoptee. And uh, he's a gymnast. Yeah, he's in the men's gymnast team. Wow. I can't even yeah. wrap my head around that at all. Yeah. Yeah. And he has a cool haircut and everything like that. He's ripped. Oh, yeah, like he him. does. He's better. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who so, else is representing the AAPI in the Olympics? Naomi Osaka is oh, doing tennis. I know that. Mm-hmm. Is she? There's another- yeah. That's awesome. There's another adoptee who's a diver. Ooh. Jordan Windle, he was adopted from a Cambodian orphanage by his adoptive father, who I believe when I first saw their story, it was being promoted for LGBTQ parents because his father is gay and adopted him as a single gay man. And his, his dad is his biggest cheerleader. All the videos, they're just so heartwarming because his dad is like yeah Jordan and they're just they're just such a beautiful representation I feel like of a positive adoption and just unconditional support and success and just oh um, my gosh I'm it, so it's jealous awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I know so now we'll have, to, we'll have to get like in a group chat and be like did you see what happened yes this no I would love that I plan on watching <laughs> the Olympics avidly 
That's so cool. Oh, yeah. I love that so much. It's so important. Plus, we get to see that. Like, oh my gosh. Right. That's yeah. so cool. Oh, I think of the little Korean kids, all the little Korean kids in the Midwest just watching Aww. on their screens. You know? I know. Cool I, know. I, like, I like, know. little Korean yeah. flags to like wave. Do you know what I mean? I want like a webinar. Mm -hmm. I want all the adopted parents to, you know, videotape their little adoptee kids watching yes. the Olympics and like waving the Korean flag. <laughs> it would just be so cute. Any yeah. little Asian kid is so cute, man. Asian babies win all the way. Yeah. They win. Seriously, so cute. I do cheer for the U.S., and but I also cheer for Korea in the Olympics. Uh, so it's always it's always going to be rooting for yeah. two teams. Oh, always, always. <laughs> it's in you, man. It's in you. Exactly. Thank you guys so much for having this podcast and having this platform because it it really is awesome. I've listened to a few of your episodes now, and I've learned so much about like my own adoption and the terminology. And yeah. Shanae, your story about, you know, bipolar and, you know, moving to Colorado and like that's, I recently have been diagnosed with bipolar and uh -huh. I found that to be incredibly gripping. One, yes. like, <laughs> man, oh man, you grip me. And two, like super inspiring, you know, because I think that it's hard enough to feel comfortable in your own skin and to own your, you know, heritage, but then to own your mental health too is a completely yeah. other, you know, facet mm -hmm. of it. And so I really admire you a lot, Shanae, for um, just kind of like saying that out loud and saying it on your platform and owning it. And it's, it's really, really cool to see. I just want to let you know that. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. And you can follow Mel on Instagram and Twitter at Taven Music and at www.meltaven.com. She has a new single that's streaming now titled Her Name. So go ahead and check her out on Spotify and give it a listen. And as always, follow us on Instagram at Soul Conversations. Check out our website, www.soulconversationspodcast.com. And feel free to send us an email at soulconversationspodcast at gmail.com. Have a wonderful week and we will catch you all on our next episode. Bye everyone. <laughs>